It's Monday, November 27th, 2017, and you're listening to The Lit Review, a literary podcast for the movement. My name is Monica Trinidad, here with my co-host Paige May, and we thank you for tuning in. Before we dive into episode 35, we're excited to announce that The Lit Review now has two sponsors. This podcast is now sponsored by the Critical Studies MA program at the Pacific Northwest College of Art. Because we need to talk, read, interrogate, intervene, and reimagine like never before. For more information or to apply, visit pnca.edu. And as always, a shout out to our first sponsor, the Arca Center for Social Justice Leadership, an initiative out of Kalamazoo College, whose mission is to develop and sustain leaders in human rights and social justice through education and capacity building. On today's episode, we'll be speaking with freelance writer and editor, photographer, anarchist, mother, and all-around amazing badass, Victoria Law. Victoria will be speaking about her book, Resistance Behind Bars, The Struggles of Incarcerated Women, originally published in 2009. Hey, hey, we're here with another episode of The Lit Review, a literary podcast for the movement. My name is Monica Trinidad, and I am here with Paige May and Vicki Law. So first off, hey, Paige, how you doing? Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm tired, but I'm good. I'm very excited that uh, Vicki Law chose to stay at my apartment while she was in town, so that's great. Um, I know Andrea... Yeah, yeah. I saw Andrea at a party yesterday, and, and she was like, "Yeah, you know." I asked Vicky, "I'm like, oh, you can stay at my house." And Vicky's like, "Nope, I'm staying at Monica's house." And I was like, "Ha, Andrea." Oh, oh. Vicky's like, "Oh, I wasn't, I wasn't aware of this." Um, so today we are here with Vicky uh, Victoria Law, um, and we are going to be talking about her book "Resistance Behind Bars: The Struggles of Incarcerated Women." Um, there's an introduction by Laura Whitehorn, um, and this is the second edition. Um, Victoria, before we get started, um, can you just give us, you know, a brief who you are, what do you do, and why? My name is Victoria Law. I am a freelance journalist and author. I am the author of Resistance Behind Bars, The Struggles of Incarcerated Women. I edit a zine or a small Xerox publication called Tenacious Art and Writings by Women in Prison, which comes out a couple of times a year, and basically I compile women incarcerated women's, both cisgender women and transgender women's writings um, into zine format. Um, and I am the mother of a New York City high school senior. Hmm. I also don't know if you noticed, but I, I have like in the room that you're staying in, I have like the zine co wall collection and on the wall is definitely the tenacious zines. Um, yes, mm. that's definitely up there. Those are some of the first um, zines that I actually got my hands on um, when I started making zines. And that's exciting. Yeah. So that's the, that, that definitely stood out to me as like, you know, the first sort of work that came from you, mm -hmm. um, which then led to this book, correct? Yes. Um, okay. So yes, thank you for making those zines. I think those zines are super important, um, and I've seen them 
all over the place in the sort of zine culture world. Um, so thank you for putting those together. Well, I love author talks because we get a special insight into uh, what your goals were, what your mm -hmm. intentions were, and also how you did it. So can you tell us more about what led you to write this book? And also, I mean, um, if you haven't caught on from the title, right, yet, the folks that are listening, this is a book that really taps into like what's going on, the resistance that's taking place behind bars. And I can only imagine some of the challenges that went into doing that research. Can you share a little bit about what that process was like um, and how you were able to, to do this? Yes. So this actually grew out of some college research I was doing. I was studying at Brooklyn College at the time, and I had done a research project on what prison organizing and prison resistance looked like post-1970s. So what did it look like in the 1980s, post-COINTELPRO, decimating the different liberation movements when there was not the capacity, the ability, or the willingness to do inside-outside solidarity work anymore when we're seeing the rise of mass incarceration and the, war, the effects of the war on drugs, what happens when um, these other movements are no longer able to like funnel their resources in and people who were rebelling inside prisons in the 1970s are either out of prison or have been taken out of commission, whether they've been killed like George Jackson or they've been placed in solitary confinement or supermaxes um, or in other ways been, um, been disabled from being able to actively rebel and organize and resist. And at the end of this semester, I looked back at everything I had gathered, everything I had read, everything I had, you know, watched, organized, the people I had written to and asked uh, these questions who are still inside prisons and everything I saw was about men. There was maybe one instance in a women's prison of a woman organizing, but uh, other than that, it was all men. So then I thought this, this doesn't seem right. And at the time I was eight and a half months pregnant. So I was not thinking I wanted to do any more research projects or anything else. I just wanted to take the required courses that I needed to get my college degree and be done. And so at the end of the semester, I'd been studying with Jean Theo Harris, who is now the author of the Rosa Parks biography. Um, and so I pointed this out to her and she said to me, well, that's what you're gonna do next semester. And I said, I'm about to have a baby, not really looking to do more work than is necessary. And so I don't think I want to do this. And she said to me, no, you will do this. We will, you know, because you're going to have a baby, we will meet when it's convenient for you. So you don't have to come an hour into onto campus to meet with me at a specific time every week, the way that other students would. We can meet when it's convenient for you, where it's convenient for you. You can bring your baby, I will hold your baby. You know, we will make all these accommodations the only thing you are not allowed to do is let your scholarship slack. Mm. I expect the same quality of work from you as you always produce. So none of this like, you know, too bad, I didn't read the book, I didn't <laughs> do any of these things. And that's what we did. So what I started to do was first, I started reading everything I could get my hands on about women in prison. And if you think of prison issues as say a bookshelf and everything on the top shelves and the middle shelves and all the shelves that are at eye level and slightly below are books that are mostly about men. Even if they're gender neutral prison books, they're really about men. And then way at the bottom corner, you know, like where you like probably are like, you know, like stepping or whatever, like with cobwebs and dust are the books about women's 
women in prison. And those are the ones that nobody's thinking about and talking about, at least at this time, which was 2000. So those are the books in which they're talking about mothering in prison, the effects of the separation of uh, children from their incarcerated mothers, the effects of separation from infants, you know, who are born to mothers in prison, uh, domestic violence, and how this is a pathway to prison for many women, and health, reproductive health care issues for women, or health care issues for women, period. So, but these weren't issues that were being looked at in all of these other books that you would readily see. So that was what I started looking at, was like, what, you know, like, what are the issues facing women in prison? At the same time, because I've been involved in anti-prison and prison abolitionist organizing, I started asking other people, well, what are women doing to organize in prison? What are they doing to get information, to share information? And again and again, people told me women don't network, women aren't organizing. I think there were 99,000 women in prison at that time, so we hadn't hit the 100,000 mark yet. And I thought there can't be 99,000 women in prison enduring these conditions all sitting on their hands like there has to be something else happening so again it was sort of like going back to looking at what are the issues that women are confronting and then I started reaching out to women in prison so I'd find the name of a woman in prison you know like somebody did something and and then I would look them up on online and I would get their contact information and I'd send them a letter and I'd say hi my name is Victoria Law I'm doing this research about uh, women in prison and what their issues are so would you mind telling me you know like what your issues are sort of in order of priority so you know like you can name as many issues as you want but I want you to tell me like issue number one which is my top priority is this you know issue number five might be this um, and then what are you doing about these to address these issues what support have you gotten? What organizations have you reached out to? Which have been helpful? Which have not been helpful? What has been the result of your efforts? Are other women also taking action around these issues? So it's basically sort of like, what, what do you, you know, like, what are you prioritizing? Mm -hmm. And so the two main priorities were for women who had children was my children, and for women who did not have children, healthcare. Like, these were the two things that the women I'd reached out to identified. Um, and then they would talk about what they were doing. And at the same time, I said, well, I'm a student. This is what I can do for you. Like, if you need me to print things off the internet, I can do that. If you need me to call your mom to see how your child is doing and relay a message, I can do that. Because at the time, people could only call collect, and a lot of families couldn't afford the high cost of prison collect calls, just like now they still can't afford the high cost of putting money on phone accounts. So there was like a barrier there and a lot of family members who are caring for women's children would say, there's no way I can continue accepting these calls because, you know, I have another mouth to feed. There's, you know, there's clothes to buy. There's, you know, like shoes, there's food, there's everything else. Like I can't accept these calls because you know, my phone bill is hundreds of dollars a month otherwise. So I, I offered concrete things, like these are the things I might be able to do to help. So it was a little bit more of an exchange and not just, hi, here I am, I really want your stories, mm -hmm. and then I disappear. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the semester, I had a rough draft of what would, fin would, of what would become the book, you know, where I talk about issues to healthcare. I talk about organizing, um, 
community building as a way of organizing and also as a stepping stone to like more formal organizing, the ways in which support groups might turn into clemency mass clemency campaigns, but this was not the original intent of forming a support group. I look at uh, organizing of among incarcerated mothers as well as women who did not have children to help incarcerated mothers, you know, maintain access to their children and also fight off termination rights, which was not something that was being talked about in the larger prison literature at the time. So that was my research process. And then at the end of the semester, I didn't stop talking to these women. So I would continue to write them letters. I would send them updates, everything else. And they would tell me about other things that were happening in the prison. And so I just started amassing all of this information. And I just like had literally a filing cabinet just full of letters and information mm -hmm. people would tell me like uh like in colorado in 2007 after there was anti-immigration legislation passed that kept a lot of migrant workers from going to colorado to work on the farms some legislator came up with the brilliant idea to allow people in prison to work on the farms instead and so they rolled out a pilot program in colorado starting at the minimum medium security women's prison, figuring that women were less likely to like, I don't know, run away, stage a rebellion, do something else. Um, and this hugely disrupted what we, uh, the women's lives in prison. So women who were on in education programs suddenly got pulled out of education programs to go work on the farms. Women who did not meet the criteria for working on the farms, there was a really stringent criteria in which you had to not be convicted of a violent crime, have X amount of on your sentence, not have disciplinary infractions or having gotten into trouble in the prison within the past X amount of time. These were all criteria to working on, on the farm. And women who weren't meeting those criteria were suddenly finding themselves at risk of being transferred to another prison so that women who did meet those criteria could be shipped to that prison and then go off onto the prison farms. So women were saying they were missing their education programs, they were in danger of like being shipped off, regardless of what kind of programming they were already involved in. Um, that prison had college classes for women who were under the age of 25, and a lot of women were like, education is important to us. Picking crops is not. This is, you know, picking crops is not going to land us a job on the outside. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I can show that I at least have an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree, like that, you know, hopefully that does something to smooth over the stigma of having a felony conviction and a prison record. Mm -hmm. so, and the women did some organizing around the ways in to, I around the ways and against the ways in which this farm program disrupted the prison. Mm -hmm. And this is something that they did without any outside help, but they were like, this is what is happening. And Women wrote to me about this because they knew me as this woman that on the outside, they just wanted to collect this information, that wanted to know. And they even pointed out that at one point, a woman, oh, and you had to be cleared for medic by medical staff. So they had s determined that you could be out in the hot sun for eight mm -hmm. to 10 hours a day doing farm work. And one woman apparently was erroneously cleared by medical because she was on the field and she said she didn't feel well and so the supervisor told her to go sit under the tree, in the shade, drink some water, just take it easy. And the next time somebody checked on her, she was dead. Mm. So, you know, like, and it, it, it was a tiny little, like, two-inch clipping in, you know, the local newspaper, you know, like, woman 
dies on the farm, you know, but, uh, but they were like, this is something that like people need to be paying attention to. Mm -hmm. This is what happens when you prioritize profit over people's lives. So this was something that like they shared with me and I might not have learned about had I not spent at that point several years, um, developing relationships with them and having them trust me on this. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking a lot about the role of researcher or the role of storyteller um, as you're you know, telling these stories. Um, were there any uh, prisoner support organizations that you worked in partnership with um, during the time of your research or that you were sort of looking to as sort of like a model for what it means to tell stories of people on the inside? At the time, I wasn't. I was actually really frustrated with the ways in which a lot of prison s prison support organizations, particularly those that were abolitionist focused, you know, focused on men. So, so it was sort of like a, you know, like and had this idea that women weren't resisting, women weren't networking, they weren't sharing information, they weren't doing things. So it was very much a sort of like I'm just doing this and I'm doing this without the auspices of other organizations I feel like in 2000 and keep in mind I had a new baby so I also wasn't going out and about mm -hmm. as much so like maybe there were things that were happening that I just was not so aware of you know because I again wasn't going out and about a lot so this was something I did kind of quietly in my house but I also wasn't aware of other groups that were doing this kind of storytelling work or this kind of gathering up of stories and information and I definitely didn't know of any groups at the time that were doing work with women in prison from an abolitionist perspective like later on I would learn about the California Coalition for Women Prisoners but it wasn't until I was like maybe like half a year into this research that I was like oh there's this group in California that's doing this work who knew type of thing so can you tell us more than uh, from those letters, what what did you what else did you see? What what can you walk us through the book? What what um, what patterns of resistance and what specific stories can you share with us about things that you document in this? So from the letters, so it was a combination of research and letters. So sometimes I would find thing find historical instances, either in really specific academic books that weren't generally available on like you know like your average bookstore shelf back when there were bookstores um, and or they come from letters and from people on the inside so like so there was one in so there were a couple of inst historical instances that I found um, one of which was in Marysville Ohio in the late 1980s there was a group of women serving either long or life sentences and they decided to start a support group called the Life Group, Looking Inward for Excellence. And it was really just supposed to be a support group. How do we do this time? How do we support each other while doing this long periods of time? How do we do this time productively? How do we not fall into despair? You know, how do, you know, and it wasn't meant to be a political group. They didn't set out with a, an agenda to do anything other than make sure that they all survived. And as they were getting together and talking, they realized that almost all of them were sentenced to lengthier life sentences for killing their abusers. They were all survivors of domestic violence. They had fought back in self-defense. And keep in mind, this is 1989, which meant that some of them had been convicted in the early 1980s. 
at the very least mid 1980s when people weren't really talking about domestic violence and courts were really not talking about domestic violence at all so then they started saying well why are we why are we all spending all this time in prison for killing our abusive loved ones so they wrote a letter to the, the then governor of Ohio and they said dear governor Celeste we would like you to consider commuting the sentences of domestic violence survivors who were, or battered women, as, as they were called at the time, who were incarcerated for defending themselves. And to understand how we got into this position, we would like to invite you to one of our weekly meetings so you can hear our stories and talk to us yourself. So Governor Celeste sent one of his aides and he sent his wife, who was a feminist and had her own sort of like political agenda around women's rights, to the prison. And they, listened, they met with the women, they talked to them, they listened to their stories, and they said, you should apply for clemency. You know, like, here's how you do it. This is the kind of paperwork we want from you. So it could have stopped there, but instead what happened was the women said, if there's us here that are doing this, you know, that are all in prison for defending ourselves, how many other women are in here for the same reason and would qualify for clemency? So they started going around the prison. And keep in mind, for listeners who don't really know a lot about prisons, prisons are not these like wide open campuses like college campuses or like Orange is the New Black where you like wander around at will. Like there are very controlled movements. Like you are only allowed to be in certain places at certain times. You are allowed to be in your housing unit. You cannot go wander to somebody else's housing unit and start talking to them. You cannot freely wander to the cafeteria anytime you want like there are you're allowed to be in a certain place and then there might be a five minute space in which you can move from point a to point b you know and then you can go there but despite these limitations the women still found ways to talk to other people you know in cafeteria in the cafeteria in the library in the yard wherever they could in their own housing units and they talked to other women about why they were there they helped them overcome denial about domestic violence and abuse, that it was not their fault that the violence had happened to them. They were not a terrible, awful person who deserved to rot in prison for fighting back or defending themselves. Um, they helped them figure out where documentation might be found, if there was any documentation. Was there a hospital record? Was there a police report? Might a neighbor have seen it? Something, something, something. And in the end, this led to 18 additional women applying for clemency. So that's 18 women that might have sat in that prison for who knows how long, thinking they were the most terrible person in the world because they killed their loved one, and not understanding that their loved one had no right ever to raise their hands to them, let alone repeatedly abuse them. And in the end, the governor granted clemency to 25 women. It was the first mass clemency for domestic violence survivors incarcerated for self-defense. And this made news all over, as you can imagine. You know, there were some headlines that got it. There were many more headlines that didn't. Talked about, you know, the husband killers were going free. Watch out. Everybody's going to kill their husbands now. Da, da, da. But the news made it to California where there was another group uh, another support group in the California Institution for Women and it was called Convicted Women Against Abuse and again it was a support group but it was a support group specifically for abuse survivors in prison and somebody found out about this probably through the newspaper and said why don't we do a clemency campaign here 
So they petitioned Governor Pete Wilson, who was governor at the time, for clemency. And they said, would you please consider granting clemency or consider granting clemency to domestic violence survivors convicted of killing their abusive spouses or partners um, for all of us in this prison system, not just us who signed the letter, but everybody. Um, and we invite you to this meeting to come and hear our stories and to talk to us and, you know, like find out how we got here. And California at the time, you know, like to elect these law and order officials who believe in tough on crime and three strikes and sending people to prison for life for dumb, stupid things. Um, I mean, dumb, stupid, petty things, you know, not like, you know, like, like, stealing pizza or whatever um so governor pete wilson declined to meet with them he declined to consider commuting the sentences of every single woman incarcerated for fighting back but he did say he would consider their petition as a request for clemency only from the women who signed it and in the end he only granted clemency to three women denied it to i think it was seven and made no decision on 24 of the others women who signed. But those efforts caught the attention of outside advocates and activists who were like, wait, there are, there are battered women in prison? Really? Really? Okay. Like, how do, how do we jump on, like, how do we support their efforts to get free? And they helped the women draft clemency petitions. They helped them find documentation that they might need to bolster these petitions. And even when the governor made his decision and lack of decision, they continued doing this work to raise awareness about the fact that battered women were in prison, which nobody was talking about in the 1990s, you know, um, and, you know, and kept pushing for their release. They formed a group called Free Battered Women, which is now been incorporated into the California Coalition for Women Prisoners, which does tremendous work. And um, in the end, their efforts led to at least 38 other survivors being released, you know, whether it be through, you know, parole, you know, parole support, whether it be through clemency, whether it be through, you know, like all of these efforts led to 38 additional domestic violence survivors being able to walk out through the gate. Can you quickly just tell us the difference between, um, what is clemency and then what does it mean to commute a sentence just like what is oh, the difference yes actually clemency and commutate so clemency is the act of either shortening a sentence through commutation so instead of say having a life sentence the governor can commute your sentence so that it is so that you could either be released immediately or you would be released soon thereafter okay. or say if you had a 20-year sentence and you get clemency the governor can choose to commute your sentence to say 10 years or you know some shorter sentence clemency can also mean a pardon which means that you not only is your sentence gone but also the record is expunged mm -hmm. um most of the time people get a commutation of the sentence they don't actually get the a pardon mm -hmm. which is like a full-on like you're just you know, done full-on action yeah, yeah usually like the pardon happens retroactively too i mean in um new york state recently not for um a formerly incarcerated woman but for a formerly incarcerated man who was facing deportation the new york state governor granted him a pardon so that that way he would not be subject to deportation mm, okay. um, because under like all of these wonderful immigration orders that all of these presidents have put into place because this man had a felony conviction even though he'd been out for some time he'd been doing all this work he had a family you know he'd been doing 
a lot of advocacy work, a lot of, you know, like motivational work and could be held up as your like model, you know, ex-incarcerated person because he was not born in this country, he was subjected to, he was subject to a deportation order mm -hmm. and that pardon removed that threat of deportation from him. Gotcha, thank you for that mm -hmm. clarification. I, I get it now. So all of these beautiful like moments of, of, of resistance and, and mm -hmm. support groups turning into take action groups and um, is so inspiring and, and, and powerful. What was the response like from the prison system, right? Like how did they respond to sort of like women finally starting to organize um, within prison? For the clemency campaigns, I think that the prison prison officials did not, and I could be wrong, but I did not find any documentation that the prison officials were opposed to these campaigns. But for organizing around conditions inside the prisons, uh, incarcerated women have, fa have faced a much tougher battle. So say even in things like there was a, at Bedford Hills, which is the maximum security prison in New York State, there was an uh, AIDS education program that was started in the late 1980s. Now again, remember the late 1980s is a time when we're not talking about domestic violence. There's a lot of ignorance and stigma around HIV and AIDS. Everybody's just like, you have AIDS, I might catch it if you sneeze. You, you know, like there's all sorts of ridiculous ignorance about this which is also fueled by the fact that prison staff and prison administrators also didn't know and weren't willing to be educated around HIV and AIDS. So women incarcerated at Bedford Hill started the AIDS Counseling and Education Program, or the ACE program, specifically to do two things, to combat the stigma and ignorance around HIV and AIDS, and also to work with women who were directly impacted, you know, helping them figure out like what kinds of questions that they needed to be asking, what kind of, you know, like, um, you know, what, what does it mean to have HIV? What are you looking, you know, like, what, what does this virus do, you know, to your body? Like, you know, like, because nobody was telling them they weren't getting access to this information. And so you would think that these would just be good things, like people understanding things about how their body works. If you have this illness, you know, like, what do you need to do to stay healthy? And instead the prison administration again and again saw this as a threat. They would shut ACE down. They wouldn't let women, um, part of it was that they would do one-on-one -on -one counseling with women who had HIV. They wouldn't let them do that for long periods of time. They told them that they couldn't call themselves counselors. Um, they brought, when ACE organizers, so this happened like over a period of time, like they would do something and then they would get shut down, you know, like then they would like, the prison would relent and allow them to start organizing again and start providing education and counseling and then they would get shut down again. At one point they invited, um, medical providers from a hospital to come and talk about HIV and everything else. And the medical providers talked about safer sex. That got the program shut down, you know? So, so there was a lot more pushback from the prison administration because you're talking about actual conditions inside the prison, like the ignorance around medical staff. And even things like, you know, what can you do to stay healthy? Oh, you need to eat better foods. Now, everybody... Listeners should know that food in prisons is crap. It is very, 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 very hard to eat healthily, you know? So imagine then if you have a chronic illness that, you know, requires you to be able to like, or if you want to stay healthy, you need to be eating healthier. You can't just be eating like carb heavy, 
foods that have no nutritional value. So these are these were seen as threats to like the prison's security and control over people. So you've already named a bunch of things that I've been trying to write down. You know, like mm-hmm. I'm hearing radical support networks, um, you know, legal advocacy, self legal self advocacy. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just sort of briefly walk through like what are other like big themes of resistance that you that you saw in your research, um, and, and like like uh, I'm thinking about like I know about. Um, you know, my my education is extremely bi- like male biased, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about Attica. I'm thinking about mm-hmm. um, like hung- I know of hunger strikes that have happened in men- men's prisons, things like that. But the, but I'm sus- very sure they also happen inside of women's mm-hmm. prisons as well. So what are some of the other big things that people do? Um, because it's such a I mean, I ju- it blows my mind when I think about the level of control. And you know, yes. you're looking at a period where this is when solitary confinement has been I don't know when solitary confinement is first sort of like quote unquote invented or like applied in mass to prisons or like these maximum security ones but like how do you re- how do folks find ways to resist inside of that um yeah where you you can't touch another person mm-hmm. you can't leave a room for 23 mm-hmm. hours right what are things that you do then um when yes. you are denied access to reading or writing mm-hmm. things like that well First of all, solitary confinement was the basis of prisons to begin with. So the idea of the penitentiary comes from the idea of the penitent. So um, back in the, I think, 1700s or whenever, the Quakers came up with this idea of having a penitentiary. So rather than flogging people publicly for for committing criminal actions, they would put people in basically solitary confinement or so with maybe a Bible. And they were just supposed to sit there and commune with God and be penitent about their actions, and somehow this would magically transform their behavior. And that was the like the origins of the modern day prison system. Later on, it was expanded to include what was called the Auburn model, um, after the prison in Auburn, New York, in which people sat in their cells and were supposed to commune with God and think about their bad behavior and you know become penitent. But then they would be allowed out of their cells to do work. And it's sort of like factory work, like making hats or whatever they were doing back in the 1800s as like factory work. They were not allowed to speak to each other. So they would be all be in a room doing this factory work. They were not allowed to speak to each other or have any sort of like communication. So they were like supposed to silently work. And this would then make some money for the prison to offset the cost of incarcerating all these people. And then back to the cells they would go to silently commune with God and think about what they had done wrong and be penitent. So, so like the whole prison system is based on this idea of like solitary confinement and it's not until later where we have people able to you know communicate with each other and be in you know be in you know I don't want to say community but to like congregate and mm-hmm. sometime and have the potential to build community um, if, if they were you know if they were able and willing to do so so some of the other issues that came up that um people in women's prisons have been organizing around around like access to children, access to their families, not having their parental rights terminated. Uh, children of incarcerated mothers are five times more likely than children of incarcerated fathers to end up in foster care. And in 1997, Congress and Clinton passed the Federal Adoption and Safe Families Act, which states that if a child has been in foster care for 15 of the past 22 months, the state and foster care agencies had to start proceedings to terminate parental rights. And what this means is that the parent whose rights have been terminated have no more access or rights to that child than the stranger in the grocery store. There is no getting out of prison and saying like, hey, I'm back. Can I have my child back? The answer is no. 
you know, hey, I'm back. Can I know where my child is? No. You know, hey, I'm back. Can I like, you know, stop at the foster family's house? No. You know, so, um, so women have organized around that. They've individually helped each other. So there's a one woman, Mary Glover, who was incarcerated in the 1970s. She did not have children. She taught herself law. She sued the Depart Michigan Department of Corrections several times, faced lots and lots of retaliation and time in solitary confinement for these for filing suits and she also spent a lot of time in the law library helping mothers navigate the legal labyrinth and paperwork for family court because mothers would be like I got this document I don't understand what this means you know what do I do what can I you know what am I supposed to respond with you know what can I do to not lose my rights to my child so women have gone to the law library to help each other out and they've also done other types of organizing to challenge laws or to force so social workers and foster care agencies to allow them to have access to their children you know while they are incarcerated but again it's not the kind of like sexy like headline grabbing attica attica you know or or the hunger strikes you know like that grab people's headlines it's like a more quiet type of resistance and this is not to say that women have not rioted over things like access to their children. In the 1970s in California, some prison administrator had the not so brilliant idea of canceling the Christmas visit. I don't know why, maybe nobody wanted to work on Christmas. I don't know why this person did this. But the result was the women were furious. They wanted to see their families at Christmas. So they broke windows. They dragged all the Christmas trees that were in the units to the yard and set them on fire. They gathered out in the yard. They refused to go back in, you know, and um, eventually the guards retook the prison. They, you know, like locked everybody in their cells. And what ended up happening was there was more resistance and organizing, you know, that happened in solitary confinement. And I first learned about this for the first edition of my book. And when I was in California, talking about my book, I met a woman, and now I'm looking for the mention of her, um, named Sin Sirocco, who came up to me and was like, oh, hi, I really liked your book. I especially liked the fact that you wrote about this riot. And I was like, oh, really? And she's like, yeah, I was in it. <laughs> uh, so, yes. So, yeah. So, she said, you know, that after the riot, the prison was placed on lockdown. So, everybody was locked into their individual cells. Like, but somehow the women managed to circulate a document on which everyone wrote their suggestions for important changes in how the prison operated. And what Sin said was one point that everyone agreed on was that no one should do longer than five years in prison because after five years, it's very difficult to acclimate to being back outside. And this was in 1975, you know, or maybe 1976 by that point since it was like the Christmas, January time. And one thing that she told me was that Nobody was thinking abolition at the time, you know, so like that wasn't on their horizon, but instinctively people knew if you spend any more than five years in prison, like really you come out and you're just sort of like slated to go back in or it's sort of like you come out and you're on like, you know, like a conveyor belt or like a slippery slide type of thing where it's so easy to like end up falling back into the prison. And so what she said is the document became the women's own 10 points and in addition to advocating for a five-year limit on all prison sentences, they demanded improved health care, food, education, maternity care, and family visits, as well as an end to the arbitrary methods of penalizing women for breaking the rules, the use of solitary confinement, California's brutal sentencing, 
prison overcrowding and the sadism of the staff. And their riot also caught the attention of the California legislature that actually had two women speak um, before the entire California assembly about an an upcoming determinate sentencing law. And so some of the women actually got to go and talk about, you know, why it was necessary that California, which at the time had an indeterminate sentencing law, like you remember George Jackson with his, you know, ridiculous sentence where it's like one to life, you know, like that there would actually be an end to, um, an end to your sentence and not this ridiculous one to life type of sentence. Mm-hmm. So that was one time in which women rioted specifically because they were like we want access to our children but oftentimes it's not a riot it's somebody sitting at the law library saying all right let's look at your family court petition you know what does it say what what do you need to be saying back you know like tell me a little bit more about this you know and doing that kind of quiet work Mm -hmm. and then to organize it on the outside yes indeed when i first actually heard about criminalization um, of women for Mm self-defense and and for surviving um, was actually with Marissa Alexander Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, learning about that through Miriam Kaba. um, And I had never really thought about this long history, this long legacy of of especially black women being historically criminalized for Mm self-defense. And so, you know, it was through Marian Kaba and the No Selves to Defend um, art exhibit that she put together Mm -hmm. with with Rachel Kaidor that I finally, you know, learned this history. So, uh, So from that, I guess my question is, what did you what did you learn from writing this book from Mm -hmm. from this research Um, and uh, do you feel like in hindsight I know you said this is the second edition but um, even then do you feel like there's anything you still feel like was left out of this book that you wish you could have included so I think that you know looking at this book now because there's more attention being paid to women in prison in large part because of organizing so you know so it's not like suddenly, you know, people are paying attention for no good reason whatsoever, but because there's been a, a groundswelling of organizing of around women's prison issues, around the criminalization of women for things like domest- uh, defending themselves against domestic violence or for survival, you know, survival actions, because formerly incarcerated women are... I don't want to say they're doing more organizing because they have been doing organizing, but because there's being more attention paid to their organizing, whereas before it might just get swept up under like general prison organizing. So I think that there's more attention being paid. So if I were to do another edition of the book, I think it would be like a, like a total like revamp of, you know, like, hey, here's all the things that have been happening since then. Like I wrote, this is the second edition of my book and it ends with the, formerly incarcerated and convicted people's movement, um, which began in 2011. And since then, now we're seeing the emergence of organizations and networks specifically of incarcerated and formerly incarcerated women like the National, this is a very long title, the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls come up because they specifically are like, we need to have networks that support our sisters, you know, that are networks in which we can share our stories, our struggles, our organizing tactics and strategies, you know, that are specific to women and girls, you know, and not have it be like this sort of like catch-all thing where, you know, like men 
you know, kind of take over because men still make up 90% of the prison population. But specifically, like, what happens when a woman goes to prison and her children get shipped off to foster care? What happens when, you know, like, what happens when a domestic violence survivor is criminalized for self-defense? What happens when um, a woman goes to prison because she was married or you know, her partner was a drug dealer and she had no information to trade for a lesser sentence or a more lenient charge. You know, what, you know, like what are, what happens to all of these things and what can we do about them? You know, what are some of the hurdles that formerly incarcerated women face when they come home that don't face incarcerated men so much or formerly incarcerated men when they come home and how do we work around these issues? So since then we're seeing things like the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls, you know, come up. We see Survived and Punished come up, um, which works around the criminalization of domestic violence survivors and women who, and people, women and trans women who are criminalized for acts of survival. And we see this is not just people on the outside who have had no direct impact by the system, but it's also people who have been impacted by the system and have been impacted by these. So we're seeing more organizing, and because we see more organizing, we see more attention being paid to this. So this would be like a much fatter book, I think, you know, like it would be like, because there's been more happening since 2000, when I was like, why don't I find anything about organizing and resistance in prison? And I mean, I want to also make clear that I didn't set out to write a book when I was asking this question. And even for the seven years that I was collecting these letters and these stories and these newspaper clippings and these internet printouts, I always thought somebody else is going to write this book. And I kept waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and nobody was writing a book about this. Mm -hmm. Like I was like, somebody will write this book, you know, obviously like this book is just waiting to be written. And again and again, nobody was writing this book. So I'm really struck um, with even just the way you started talking about how you how you wrote the book and how you mm -hmm. researched for the book. Um, and when I first started organizing, I was helping to start up a chapter of Black and Pink here in Chicago, um, and that was my intro to organizing. And it seems like this is a book that's really important for organizers to read both inside and outside of prisons. And even the way that you wrote it, you were saying, you know, as you're asking for information about what's going on, you're offering something back, right? And that there's a somewhat of an exchange there yes. and I think that's important and I'm glad that you brought that in and I'm wondering if you can say more about what this book suggests or provides examples of of for organizers either inside or outside as to how we can work together um, and how we can support each other I think one of the I'm hoping that one of the takeaways that ev every reader takes away from the book is that organizing inside prisons can take many different forms so it's not again necessarily the form that we have been conditioned to think of when we think of organizing so you know it may not be the hunger strike it may not be Attica or a Christmas riot or you know something along those lines you know it might be again people sitting in a law library I remember one woman asking me to look up law legal cases for her you know around health care in the prison actually in an Illinois pr she was in an Illinois prison she was having she was in solitary confinement she did not have access to the law library as somebody in solitary confinement she was at the now not a women's prison Dwight Correctional Center at the time and she asked me to print out all these legal cases pertaining to prison health care so that she could file her lawsuit, you know, type of thing. And so this is, you know, this was a way 
this is a very quiet type of resistance because even if it only meant that she got health care and it didn't turn into a class action suit, it would set a precedent for other women in that prison and women elsewhere to say like, hey, this person got health care. You know, like I deserve to have health care too and you need to give me health care based on this. So I think part of it is listening to what people are saying about what's happening in prison and then saying like, what are the ways in which I can help? You know, what are the ways in which I can support? And asking them, what are the ways in which I can support? And also being clear about some of the things that you can't do, you know, as well, so that you're not raising expectations in the same way that you would hopefully not raise expectations to people on the outside about, yes, of course I can buy you a million dollar Mercedes. No, you can't type of thing, you know, like, like not promising more than you know that you can do so i think it's listening being in communication and talking to people mm-hmm. oh, i have so many more questions but i know that we're almost at time um thank you so much for being on our show i have one i want to mm-hmm. i really want to point out who is laura whitehorn i feel like people don't know who laura whitehorn is still and i would really love to just you know give laura some justice yes laura whitehorn is a former political prisoner um she is an awesome organizer she is now out of prison she spent more than 14 years in the federal prison system and she was arrested in 1985 as part of what was called a resistance conspiracy case in which she and five other people were charged with conspiracy to bomb several government buildings that were set that she called symbols of u.s racism and imperialism including the capitol building Mm. And this was a response to the U.S. invasion of Grenada and the shelling of Lebanon. Mm. And she was arrested. Um, she was first in the Baltimore City Jail, where she, in my book, recounts an awesome um, example of organizing among the women in the Baltimore City Jail, which would not be considered resistance in organizing by our sort of like more strict prison organizing, must look like this terms, mm-hmm. um, before being transferred to the federal system where she spent more than 14 years. Wow. And why did you choose Laura to write your introduction for this book? Laura, I feel like, is one of those people that continues to organize and resist, like she resisted in prisons. She was one of the people that started organizing, even though she was in the federal prison system in every prison she went to, she organized around HIV and AIDS. You know, again, 1985, nobody knows anything about HIV and AIDS, let alone people in prison, whether it's the people who work there, the peop- the medical staff who should know this stuff, or the people who are incarcerated who are like, oh no, oh no, we're so scared of this disease. Um, and so she did this work, you know, like she organized around, you know, like all sorts of other prison conditions. And then she came home and she continues to organize. So mm. I thought that this was mm. really somebody, you know, like that I wanted to to write the introduction for yeah. my next edition. Yeah. Well, I I love Laura Whitehorn. I think she's incredible. And my I know my partner is um, knows her and is friends with her. So yeah, I just maybe you uh, should have her on the I show. I should. We should definitely, Laura. If you are listening, you should definitely be on our show. That would be really awesome. Um, are you working on any other books right now, or what books have come out since um, Resistance Behind Bars? Yes, so there's Resistance Behind Bars, and at the same time the second edition came out, I also co-edited an anthology called Don't Leave Your Friends Behind, mm. Concrete Ways to Support Families in, in Social Justice Movements and Communities. Mm-hmm. And it's a combination of first-person essays, as well as 
very practical like tip sheets you know like on like this is the way you baby proof your house when you have a small child coming to visit type of thing these are some things you should keep in mind when providing childcare, as well as like some historical look backs like david gilbert who um is a political prisoner who's been incarcerated in new york state prison since 1983 for a botched um Brinks robbery, wrote about being part of like the Students for a Democratic Society and the Weather Underground and organizing childcare as a dude in you know these movements. Um, so so also sort of like looking at some of these things as well. So it's it's a sort of continuum of you know how do we support families you know in these movements instead of pushing them out because they don't have childcare or because they don't have you know like the resources to be able to pay for childcare or maybe like they need to like be bringing their kids with them or they can't come because you keep having meetings when it's like mealtime and bedtime type of thing so looking at all of these ways in which we can can make our movements more inclusive and multi-generational rather than everybody drops out when they get to a certain point in their life oh and also i am sorry i'm like i got so involved in that yes and then also i am co-writing with maya shenwar um a book that is tentatively titled your home is your prison which is about the ways in which some of the proposed and more popular alternatives to prison such as electronic monitoring probation um the sex offender registry actually mimic you know, and reinforce the carceral system and also brings it into our homes and our communities. So what does it mean if we turn our homes and communities into open-air prisons? What happened? You know, are we actually abolishing prisons or are they just taking another form and coming into our lives even deeper? Um, Well, thank you so much. It was a wonderful conversation. I so appreciate your work, and I can't wait to read that book. Um, If you wouldn't mind closing us out with a favorite passage. I see two green marks, so there might be two parts. I'm not sure. All right. Well, there are two green marks, but I'll read one, and then if there's time, I'll read the other. Um, So the first one actually goes to your point about inside-outside Um, resistance and support and this is actually written by a woman named Rachel Galindo who was in prison in Colorado at the time she's now out and she writes I was thinking about how we prisoners are very cut off from much of the rest of the world including people who do not support the prison system or people who may be interested in our struggle so I think that more communication via letters would help I think that transaction would encourage resistance on both ends because it would strengthen information and knowledge both ways. I also think that hearing about efforts of resistance outside of prison would inspire and encourage us prisoners. Plus, through correspondence, people can see that many incidents that they read or hear about happen daily. The communication between two humans concerning their hopes, ideas, and their plights is what allows them to bond in resistance against a system that affects everyone in many different ways. As I mentioned, we inmates would be inspired to see another position of struggle and that though they may differ, all struggles are shared. This would strengthen resistance both inside and outside of the prison gates. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Lit Review, a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about books for the movement. We are your co-hosts, Monica Trinidad and Paige May, two Chicago-based organizers. Special shout out to The Lit Review's very own sponsor, the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership out of Kalamazoo College. Keep your eyes and ears open for another episode next Monday, same time, same place.
Want to hear about a specific book? Email us at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. And if you like this episode, give it a shout out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at litreviewshy. Keep, Keep reading! reading.